0: If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. If you're visiting this morning and I've not had the chance of meeting you, my name is John Server. I am one of the pastors here. We're back in John. Again, John chapter 10. That's page 953 of the Pew Bibles. And if you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 10. We're going to go ahead and jump right in. So when you get there, I will invite you to stand with me and re- Reverence for the reading of God's Holy Word. John chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 22. We'll go through verse 30. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple uh, in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long... "'Are you going to keep us in suspense? "'If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. "'I did tell you, and you don't believe,' Jesus answered them. "'The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, "'but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. "'My sheep hear my voice. "'I know them, and they follow me. "'I give them eternal life, and they will never perish.'" No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the Word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Well, we're in John chapter 10. We're still in Jerusalem for what has been an extended period For Jesus, Jesus, as we've seen, has been revealing himself. It's been followed by debate. There's this kind of series of self-disclosure and debates in Jerusalem. Jesus in John 7 revealed himself to be the long-awaited Messiah who brings the Spirit of God for his people, followed by debate. John 8 then reveals himself to be the light of the world, followed by debate. Jesus at the end of John chapter 8 reveals himself to be the great I am, followed by debate. Our more immediate context is John chapter 9, where Jesus demonstrates that he indeed is the light of the world. He did so by healing a man who was born blind. This leads to more debate. What this also revealed, not just about Jesus, but about the religious leaders, is a fundamental problem. And it's that they don't actually care about the people of Israel. And they're not interested in having a Messiah like Jesus. So in John 10, Jesus then reveals himself as the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. Both Israel's God and David's son come to care for his people. This is followed by debate. Jesus then explains in so many words again that he is God become man to shepherd his people, that he will do so by wresting Israel away from Israel's corrupt and false shepherds whom Jesus describes as thieves, robbers, wolves, hired hands, and strangers. In contrast to those who only come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus explains that the good shepherd comes that the sheep might have life and have it in abundance. So what John 10 gives us initially is this contrasting picture between Jesus the good shepherd and Israel's false shepherds. Jesus calls his sheep by name. Jesus knows his sheep from eternity past. Jesus loves his sheep without measure. Jesus leads his sheep to greener pastures. The good shepherd loves the sheep enough to die for them. The false shepherds love themselves so much they'll kill the sheep to fill their bellies. John 10 gives us this contrast between the true shepherd and false shepherds, it also implicitly, at least initially, gives us a contrast between true and false sheep. True sheep, verse 4, know the shepherd's voice. True sheep, follow the shepherd's lead. True sheep, verse 5, never follow strangers. True sheep, verse 14, know Jesus. True sheep, verse 15, come together to form one flock under Christ. You see, just as there is one true shepherd, so there are true sheep. Now, the religious leaders, they ask a question we heard. It's a true shepherd question. Are you the Messiah? But because of the way they ask it, they reveal themselves to not be true sheep. The difference between the true shepherd and false shepherds is obvious. But what distinguishes true sheep from false ones? We'll consider three characteristics of Jesus's sheep from the text this morning. True sheep understand Jesus' works, they listen to Jesus' voice, and they trust Jesus' power. Again, we'll see these three characteristics of Jesus' sheep from the text. True sheep understand Jesus' works, they listen to Jesus' voice, and they trust Jesus' power. These can also be stated as reminders, encouragements, commands to us, brothers and sisters, as Christ's sheep. Seek to understand Jesus' works. Listen to Jesus' voice and trust in Jesus' power. First, Jesus' sheep understand his works. Jesus' signs are intended to be messages for the sheep to understand that he's communicating. And we decipher them by using his word. So we begin again in verse 22. John writes, Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. So it gives us a little bit of context. It's winter. That means it's cold. They don't have space heaters. So Jesus is not teaching in the open courtyard. He was doing what would have been custom at the time. He's teaching in Solomon's colonnade, and he's pacing, which is keeping him warm. It's sheltering from the cold. It's also why he's easily cornered by the Jewish leaders. John also tells us it's the festival of dedication. Now, you probably have noticed this from the book of John, that so much of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel takes place in Jerusalem, and it centers around festivals and feasts. This one, the Festival of Dedication, took place two months after the Festival of Shelters. That was John 7 and 8, where Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. So what is the Festival of Dedication? You won't find it in the Old Testament. A little bit of a history lesson in the year 167 BC. This is between our Old and New Testaments. Antiochus Epiphanes sacked Jerusalem and set up a military stronghold there. He then replaced the altar to the one true God after having seized the temple and erected an altar to Zeus. The Jews eventually led a revolt under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. He was the son of a priest. They used guerrilla warfare to dispel the much larger and better equipped Seleucid army. Then in 164 BC, the Jews retook Jerusalem. They restored the temple and they rededicated it. They then celebrated for eight days. They established this eight-day feast for the renewal of the temple, better known as Hanukkah. And as the story goes, they only had enough oil to keep the lampstand in the temple lit for one day, but the oil lasted all eight. Okay, so John's giving us this little note. He's telling us about the festival of dedication or renewal. The people are celebrating a festival centered on lights, centered on the renewal of the temple and the liberation of Israel from their political foes as they are waiting for the Messiah to come and renew them once again, to build them an even grander temple and to dispel their political enemies. Enter Jesus, the light of the world, Israel's Messiah, the one who will vanquish Israel's most pressing foes now. But it's not the one that the religious leaders have in mind. So they confront him, verse 24, the Jews surround him and ask him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. They are accusing Jesus of being obscure. Like how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, let us know already. Like where have these guys been? It would be like someone jumping in, in the middle of like the fourth Harry Potter and asking, is Harry the good guy? He's like, where have you been? Again, this is what we've seen so far, not even including the prologue. We have heard that Jesus is the Lamb of God, 129. Jesus is the Messiah, 141. Jesus is the Son of Man, 151. Jesus is Heaven's Ladder, 151 again. Jesus is the spirit anointed one, 133. Jesus is the temple, 221. Jesus is the bridegroom, 329. Jesus is the savior of the world, 441. Jesus does everything the father does, 519. Jesus is as worthy of honor as the father, 523. Jesus is the son of God, 525. Jesus is the one who will raise the dead, 525. Jesus has life in himself, just like the father, 526 jesus will judge the world 527 jesus is the bread of life 635 jesus has come down from heaven 642 jesus will ascend to heaven 662 jesus is the light of the world john eight twelve. jesus has been taught all things by the father 828 and before abraham was jesus is the great i am john eight fifty-eight. are you the messiah if you had a messiah bingo board all of the squares would be covered with chips Jesus, if you're the Messiah, will you finally make it clear to us? The issue is not clarity. No matter what you ask the Son, you can't see it if you're blind. Jesus told us in John chapter 6, it wouldn't matter if they saw the heavens crack as he ascended to his throne, it would not be enough for them. There is no threshold of evidence or sign that can give life to a dead heart. The problem lies not on the side with Jesus, but of his hearers. The issue is not with his mouth or his hands, but with their ears and their eyes. How long will you keep us in suspense? D.A. Carson, trusted New Testament commentator, says we can translate this more negatively. How long will you keep annoying us? When are you going to let us know already? Importantly, they're not asking or wondering if Jesus is the Messiah, so that they can repent and believe, so that they can worship and follow him. They're asking Jesus to admit that he thinks he's the Messiah so they can accuse him. What do you think Rome is gonna do with someone who thinks he's Israel king during a festival dedicated to a former revolution? You see, motives matter. Since chapter five, they've been trying to kill him. They're not asking the question in good faith. Like one of these dudes is wearing a wire like, Jesus, repeat after me. I, first name Jesus, last name Christ. I am the Messiah, the son of David. Come to establish Israel's kingdom, to vanquish enemies, both foreign and domestic. I'm just kidding. They had no wires. And his last name is not Christ. (laughs) What Jesus understands is it doesn't matter how he answers the question. They will not believe. And it's not that they don't want a Messiah. They just don't want a Messiah like Jesus. They want one like Judas Maccabeus. You'll recall in chapter 6, after Jesus felled their, filled their, billy, their bellies, they sought to make him king by force. They want a political revolution. Brothers and sisters, your non-Christian friends will be fine with Jesus if you tailor him to their desires. We could grow more easily that way. You just take Jesus and you make him sanctify the culture's sin. You take Jesus and you make him champion their politicians. But Jesus will not be our puppet Messiah. It's clear from how he answers. Are you the Messiah? He says, verse 25, I did tell you. I've already told you. I did tell you and you don't believe. Jesus has told them both through word and deed. It's important for us to understand Jesus is not trying to be obscure. He didn't come to hide himself under a basket. He is happy to identify himself as the Messiah to those who recognize their need. Think back to John chapter 4 where Jesus is at the well. And he meets a Gentile woman, and a moral woman at that. She doesn't even ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. She starts talking about the Messiah and he tells her, the one you're talking about, it's me. He is quite happy to identify himself as the Messiah and he has been clearly telling them in a way that they should understand if they had been reading their Bibles in faith, if they had been listening to his teaching in faith, if they had been interpreting his works in faith. Jesus tells them, verse 25, how he has shown it to them, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me you see the evidence of christ is clear for those who have eyes to see even the blind guy could see it consider the works that jesus has done in addition to all the things we just heard said about him in john 2 jesus turns water into wine by the power of his word in john 4 jesus healed a child without even having to go to his home he stopped death in john 5 jesus raised a lame man in john 6 jesus fed well over five thousand people Every single sign has demonstrated both that he is Israel's God and their Messiah, the creator and the Christ. Just 2 months ago, as all of Israel is packed into Jerusalem, Jesus stood up on the most important day and offered thirsty offered water to those who recognized their thirst. He proclaimed himself to be Israel's God, the one who baptized Israel as they walked through the Red Sea. He identified himself as the God who gave Israel water in the wilderness. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Then, on the last day, John 8, again, Jesus stands up, declares that He is the light of the world. He is the God of the burning bush. He's the God of the pillar of fire. He's the Messiah come to give light to those living in darkness and to lead them to the land of promise. Then, John 9, another sign. Jesus heals a man bored blind, demonstrating that He, indeed, is the light of the world. Jesus gives God's saving revelation he gives it to those who recognize their need for him you see brothers and sisters if you do not recognize your need for jesus you will not understand his works do you come to the gathering do you come to your bible in need in faith recognizing that jesus is who he says he is jesus has through word and deed demonstrated that he is the fulfillment of all of israel's histories and types he is the new temple. He is better manna from heaven. He is the sun to replace all the stars. His water quenches all thirst. His word raises the lame. His hands heal the blind. He is David's son and Abraham's God. Every sermon and every sign that Jesus has delivered has demonstrated this. John tells us, John 20:31, that the signs are written down. No doubt they were delivered in time so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The problem is, they are just not listening. Again, the problem lies not on the side of the shepherd, but with those masquerading to be sheep. They don't recognize his voice. Why? Jesus presses more deeply. He shows us in verse 26 he says, But you don't believe because you are not my sheep. You see, one of the chief characteristics of Christ's sheep is that we understand his works. The blind man reminded us, you don't need a PhD to confess, I was once blind, but now I can see. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was guilty, but now I'm forgiven. I was dead, but now I have life. I was once hell-bound, but now I'm heaven-sealed. The sheep see the signs and they believe. They understand that they point to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we want to be good at reading our Bibles and understanding how all the works of God testify to Jesus. We want to be skilled at understanding how His works point to Him because they anchor our hope for heaven. When we read our Bibles, we should be asking, How does this work point to Jesus? We want to be skilled at reading our Bibles. We also want to be skilled at reading our lives. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not stop working when he ascended to heaven. Christ's work did not end when the canon was closed. He did not cease his work with the last of the apostles. Jesus is continuing to work in your life. Do you know this? Can you see this? Do you understand what he's up to? The false sheep miss it. They couldn't find the Messiah if he was in their midst, transforming water, raising the lame, calming the storm, healing the blind, multiplying food. But as his sheep, we should be able to, with increasing skill, notice where Jesus is at work. We should be able to look at our lives, the lives of our brothers and sisters, and point and see that's where Jesus is at work. Have you grown in this skill? Are you able to see that Jesus is working, that he works in such a way in your life that it should increase your trust in him? Can you look back through seasons and see, Jesus got me through that season when it seemed like there's no hope. He cares for me. Again, you look through a season and you notice how he orchestrated all the details. It points you to Jesus. He's sovereign. You look at your life and you realize, I don't struggle with that sin like I used to. Jesus is the Savior. And yet you recognize, I continue to struggle with this sin, but He died for sinners. He loves me. You recognize from your life that Jesus is more satisfying than everything the world has to offer. You've come to experience this, you've seen the way that He cares for you, what He gives you. You say, Jesus is good. You've noticed in your life that when others abandon you, when loved ones have left you, that Jesus is faithful. Brothers and sisters, do you see the way that Jesus is working in your life today? John saw these miraculous signs. He understood them. He recorded them so that we would come to believe and be sustained in faith. We want to be experts in reading God's word, that it might encourage our hearts We also want to grow in seeing the ways that Jesus continues to work in our lives today that we might be encouraged. I would encourage you to write down his deeds, to recount them, to return to them when you're prone to look for other messiahs. You see, the sheep see the signs and they understand Jesus is at work for them. The sheep also listen to Jesus' voice. The sheep listen to jesus's voice jesus tells us that plainly verse 27 my sheep hear my voice i know them and they follow me the implications here is that those who don't belong to jesus don't listen to his voice that they are unknown by him that they do not follow him this is why they're setting a trap for him the sheep on the other hand they hear the voice of jesus They are known by him and they know him and they follow Jesus gladly. Jesus here is in a condensed version recapping his last sermon. You might look back at verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The end of verse 4, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him. Jesus is telling us that there are a cacophony of voices and that the sheep flee from the stranger and run to Christ. We know that our lives depend upon it verse 8 all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep didn't listen to them. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus on the other hand I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. The sheep listen to Jesus. The sheep Flee from strangers. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that any voice that promises life apart from Christ leads to death? Jesus' voice promises us life, and he guaranteed it by means of his own death. And we've learned this by experience, first at the cross and then in our own lives, that Jesus is the good shepherd. His ways lead to life. Whereas false shepherds want to use us for their gain, look at how Christ leads us. Look at how personal it is. We hear his voice. That means that God himself stoops low to speak to us. He cares about you such that he speaks to you and he called you by name. Not only that, he knows us. The wisdom of God has known you since before the foundation of the world. He knows it all and he loves you. And he bids you to come and follow him. It's not enough for Jesus to die for us. At a distance, he calls us to come in close to stay by his side. He calls us to follow him as he leads us away from danger to greener pastures. Every stranger, thief, robber, and wolf aims to pull us from the side of Christ to steal from us, to kill us, to destroy us. Brothers and sisters, we know this. We've experienced this too. Whatever momentary happiness sin offers us is fleeting and fatal. Satan, the father of lies, is very happy to employ strangers to deceive us, to pull us away from Christ. The stakes for knowing Jesus' voice and being repulsed by the voices of others could not be higher. It's the difference between life and death, between healing and destruction. Brothers and sisters, how well do you know the voice of Jesus? Are his words familiar to you? Can you immediately distinguish him from that of the stranger? One of the most common fraud schemes in the U.S. is called the imposter scam. It's like someone will call you, they'll email you, they pretend to be someone you trust, like a sibling, a child, a grandchild. They tell you they're in a bind, they ask you to help them out. Or the scammer might be pretend to be an institution that you trust, like the IRS. They tell you you owe back taxes and to pay them. Americans lose millions of dollars every year on imposter scams. I saw just in the last month that this woman, she was a principal of a high school, thought she was emailing with Elon Musk about a grant. For whatever reason, he didn't email it first. I don't know, she sent him $100,000 that she then lost for her school. When someone comes to you saying the right names, using the correct lingo, promising to have your best in mind, can you distinguish friend from foe? Worse than being tricked out of a little bit of money is following false teachers into death and destruction. They impersonate pastors and teachers. They wield the Bible. They put forth fake Jesuses who cannot save. We can only come to recognize Jesus' voice with precision when we spend time with him in his word. We want to be able to pick out his voice in the middle of a crowd. As the sheep, we should love his voice. We know it leads to life. We should long to hear his voice, knowing he calls to us as one who knows us. We should long to hear his voice knowing He cares for us, He leads us, He dies for us, He now lives for us. Brothers and sisters, I don't doubt that there are prominent voices in your world, at your work, on your screen, that clash and compete with Christ. Are you aware of them? Can you distinguish what they teach from what Jesus teaches? Brothers and sisters, the voice of Jesus, His words and His promises are just flat out better than what the world has to offer they're better than the prominent voices in your life right now think about the loudest voices that you hear in your head some of us grew up with parents whom we could never appease we rarely heard them say they loved us or worse yet, they regularly reminded us that we were condemned to you jesus says luke 7:48, your sins are forgiven Some of us have had false teachers in our ears. They tell us to pick ourselves up and to obey until God smiles upon us. They tell us to rid ourselves of sin before we can approach Jesus. To you, Jesus whispers, Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Some of us have bosses who are so demanding and taxing without regard for our well-being They crush us with work, demanding that we prove our worth to them. To you, the voice of Jesus calls out, Matthew 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of us have believed Satan's lie, that God does not care about us, that he's not interested in the details of our life. Jesus gently reminds you, Matthew 10, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Some of us have had loved ones threaten to leave us, or even leave us, if we do not meet the standard of their kingdom, To you, the king of heaven and earth cries out, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Brothers and sisters, listening to the voice of Jesus is not a chore. It is no more burdensome than honeymooning with your spouse or vacationing with your best friend. Jesus is calling you away from those who would destroy you to listen to his his voice as it leads to life. He aims to give you life in abundance, overflowing, eternal, blessed joy in God. Brothers and sisters, do you love hearing the voice of Jesus? Are you then putting yourself in position to hear his voice in his word? Are you reading his Bible daily? Do you prioritize the gathering where God's voice is made so clear in the preaching of the word? If not, why? Maybe you've been deceived by a stranger. Brothers and sisters, you can trust that Jesus only ever speaks to you the word you need to hear. Because he speaks to you not as a stranger, but as one who knows you. Who became like you. As one who's foreknown you. As one who came for you specifically. Brothers and sisters, he calls you by name. When he calls you by name, it's not an empty phrase. He's calling the whole of you to receive all of him. And he calls you not to keep you at a distance, but for you to come right next to him. The beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus came to us. He calls to us not to take from us, but to give to us. Jesus came to give to us and to give to us in abundance. And what Jesus gives cannot be taken away. Jesus' sheep know this, and they trust in his power. Jesus's sheep trust in his power. Christian, trust the power of Jesus. Look at verse 28. Jesus tells us what he gives to the sheep he calls I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life. This is the gospel. Jesus gives. He doesn't pay us for work we deserve. He gives us eternal life. The forgiveness of sins, communion with God, entrance into the kingdom, safety in his flock. Jesus gives it all to those who deserve the opposite. Notice, everything the thief aims to give us, death and destruction is what we deserve. Jesus would be just to let us walk towards self-determined self-destruction. But Jesus, in his mercy, rather than giving us death, gives us life. Rather than giving us condemnation, gives us forgiveness. Rather than giving us the rejection we deserve, gives us adoption. How is it possible? What we deserve, what he's keeping us from, he already bore The death and destruction we were headed for, Christ took upon himself on the cross. He was punished for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. He died so that we could live. Everything that we deserve, he got so that everything he deserves, we might get. The gospel is a beautiful exchange whereby the God-man is treated like a sinner so that the sinner can be treated like the God-man. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and what he gives will not be taken away. The promise is not just that we will live, but that we will never perish. In Greek, it's more like, we will never, ever, ever perish. Brothers and sisters, once he's called you by name, once he's given you life, once you've drunk from his well, once you've walked in his light, once your sins have been forgiven, once you've been sealed by his spirit, there is no going back why the gospel's a gift and there's a gift that predates your reception of it verse 29 the father gave you to the son think about that you were a gift from God to Jesus you yes you the sinner you are God's wonderfully made predestined in eternity, past purchase on the cross, called in due time, gift from the Father to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you are a gift that Jesus does not intend to lose. John 6, 37, Jesus told us, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. We know this, the more valuable a possession, the less likely you are to lose it. Think about all the gifts you received over the course of your life. You can't even remember them all. You probably don't have any of the presents, depending on your age, that you received at your 6th birthday, your 16th birthday, your 60th birthday. They have come and gone like the changing tide, and you're probably unaffected by it. Like imagine not being able to sleep because you can't find the Game Boy your dad gave you in 1996. The Stretch arm song your grandma gave you in 1972. My birthday was like two weeks ago. My kids gave me Flaming Hot Cheetos, Oreos, and a loaf of bread. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Hashtag blessed. I forgot about the Oreos until like two nights ago. I was like, oh, here we go. There are some gifts that you receive, you lose, you forget about them. There are some gifts that you cling to. If the house is burning after the people are out, you go for them. If somebody approached me on the street to rob me for my loaf of artisan bread, I'm walking my bread as one does, take the bread. Like, Do you need some ham? Jesus loves you. And then there are some gifts that you would risk over. I have two chains and a pendant you guys have probably seen me wear. One belongs to my deceased father. The thinner one belongs to my late grandmother named Josie, who Josephine is named after. She gave it to my sister on her deathbed, who then gave it to me. The The pendant is a replica of one my grandmother wore, of one my mother wears, of one everyone in my immediate family has, and it was a gift from my mom. If somebody tried to take my bread from me, take it. My phone even, find mine. You can have it. If somebody tried to take my family heirlooms from me, not while my heart is beating. They were gifts from my father, my mother, my grandmother. You see, the more valuable a possession is, the less likely you are to lose it. You lose junk all the time, but you cling to what matters. Brothers and sisters, how valuable do you think you are to Jesus? Well, who gave him the gift? And what did he pay for it? Who gave you to Jesus, verse 29, the Father? And what did the Father pay to buy you? The blood of his son, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that you were redeemed, that is, you were bought... You were purchased from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. If God bought you with the blood of his eternally loved and treasured son, and he gave you to his son, Jesus, to be treasured, do you think he's going to lose you? Not a chance. As we shall soon sing, he'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Why? Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. The cost was too great to let you go. Think about it. You don't lose your car in the parking lot and think, I guess I'll get another one. Jesus didn't die for you only to let you slip into hell. He will not lose what is valuable to him. When thief and robber and wolf come, and they will, Jesus will not go the way of the coward. He proved it once for us on the cross. You are as precious to him as his own life. Yes, you. This is why we love the voice of Jesus. This is why we cling to his side, because he has clung to ours. Do you really think he'll lose you? Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it so well. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Jesus takes the promise and he puts it in the context of the shepherd metaphor. At the end of verse 28, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The imagery is of Christ, the good shepherd, carrying us, his sheep, home. Why is he carrying us? It's because we wandered far from the fold. It's because we're in danger. He picks us up and carries us and stands between all that would keep us from getting to heaven. That is our Jesus One of my favorite verses from any hymn is verse 3 of The King of Love My Shepherd Is. It says, "Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me." We wandered. We were lost, we were in danger. He found us and yet he is the one rejoicing. He's the one made happy to find us. That is how precious you are to him. He will not let anyone snatch you from his hand. Now, we know that something or someone can be precious to you. That doesn't mean you can protect them. Someone could overpower me and take the things that are dear to me. Can Jesus make good on his promise? Maybe someone can snatch us. Maybe Jesus didn't take into account my weakness, my enemies, my addiction, my past, my doubts. Will Jesus make good on his promise? Again, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one how secure are you you are as secure as the unchanging will of god who gave you to jesus he gave you to jesus and he does not change his mind he's not surprised by your sin he didn't know you he knew you would be fickle he was not unaware you would struggle he decreed in eternity past that you would be among the flock of his son Your names are written in his mind, and he will not soon forget about you. The Father is not revoking his gift to Jesus. And you are not a gift the Son will reject. How secure are you? You are as secure as God is powerful. This is what Jesus is getting at with a hand metaphor. You are protected by his power. By the power of the Father. No one, and he means no one, is greater than the Father. Not Satan, not your sin, not those who persecute you. There is no one greater than God. And Jesus tells us He and the Father are one. They share the same power because they are the same God. Brothers and sisters, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, who do you think is more powerful than God? Satan? Your persecutor? Your sin? Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, the God who is greater than all, if God is for us, who is against us? But does, but does he love us enough? Verse 32, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him grant us everything? But what about my sin? Who, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who, who justifies who is the one to condemn christ jesus is the one who died but even more he has been raised he is also at the right hand of god and intercedes for us he is still at work who can separate us from the love of christ can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword paul tells us no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there is no created thing powerful enough to rip you away from your Creator. Not a one. The wonderfully good news of the gospel is that God's love for us, His forgiveness of our sins, His adoption, it's all a gift from beginning to end. Paul tells us even there in Romans 8, He foreknew us, He predestined us, He called us, He justified us. He, can speak in past tense, glorified us. There will be no plot twists on our way to glory. There's no suspense about the end because Jesus has already paid for our sins. Jesus has already made peace between us and God. Jesus has already sealed us with his spirit. And Jesus right now is clinging to you with an unflinching will and with the power of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are secure. You are as secure as you are precious. You are as secure as God is powerful. If you are in Christ, the only way you don't make it to heaven is if God stops being God. It's not going to happen. And no one, and he means no one will snatch you from his hand. The wonderfully good news of the gospel is that our salvation does not depend upon our grip of God, but his grip on us. Brothers and sisters, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Even if your mind goes one day due to old age or disease, God will not forget you. The triune God is clinging to you with all of His power, even when you are barely clinging to life, even when you are barely clinging to Him. What good news! You cannot be taken. You cannot fall out. You will not be forgotten or left behind. God will hold you fast. He has declared you too precious. He has paid too great a price. He is too powerful. Christian, be reminded today that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't trust your works. Don't trust your baptism. Don't even trust your faith. Simply trust in Jesus, the one who called you by name, the one who leads you to pasture, the one who died for your sins, the one who now guards you with the power of God, the one who has proved to you time and again, both in scripture and in your own life, the one who speaks to you such sweet promises as this one. He is guarding you right now with all the power of heaven. He is the Messiah. Do you know it to be true? If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, the Bible is incredibly clear that you need a savior. Do you understand that you have sinned against God? You deserve his justice. And the Bible tells us that there is no other name under heaven given by which people may be saved. It's Jesus or nothing. The question is not if Jesus is the Messiah, but whether or not we will trust him. We would encourage you today to Repent of your sins and a trust in Jesus. We would encourage you to stay after the service and dialogue with us about it. If you read through the Gospel of John, it's no surprise that Jesus is the Christ. It's surprising that he would choose us. But he did because he loves us. He is worthy of our trust, of our worship, of our discipleship. Brothers and sisters, make it your aim to understand his works. Make it your aim to listen to his voice and make it your aim to trust him in his power. He is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your unmerited favor and love and kindness to us. That as